Okay. I'm Tommy Lassels, and this is a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining us for the 12th edition in this series is the creator and host of Speaking of Jung, Laura London, in Chicago, Illinois. Actually, later, I'm going to be joined by Liz Jefferson for a freewheeling discussion. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com where you'll find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Thursday, December 31st, 2020 through the magic of Skype. I pitched this idea for the show a number of months ago and I'm very pleased that uh, you accepted my offer. And I'm going to ask questions that I think the listeners are going to be interested in hearing your responses to. Okay. So here we go. Can I just clear up a, a couple things at, at the start? Because people are going to, I know the audience is going to be very curious as to who you are. Um, Tommy Lassels is obviously not your real name. Um, and the reason why I agreed to do this with you is because you are anonymous, you are not on the internet. Uh, don't bother Googling him because you will not find him. Um, and you are not on social media. So you're not caught up in uh, discussions or followers, anything of that sort. And so we also, you've been with me since the beginning of this podca podcast, uh, as has Liz. So you know everything that's gone into it and everything that's gone on because um, you've you know you and I are good friends. We've known each other for a very long time, and you are interested in Jung. You read Jung, and you've been in analysis, so you know where I'm coming from with all of this. So I just wanted to um, let the listeners know that about you that you're not just some random who is going to be asking me some questions. I mean, there, there's, there's something behind this. There's a reason for it. Uh, very good. Very good. So let me ask you the first question. And, and I, I know that on several of the episodes that you have discussed this, but I, I also think that there are potentially new listeners that may not know this information or, those may have forgotten what you said previously. So I would ask, uh, what what was the inspiration for this project slash podcast? Wow. Uh, well, yeah, I, I will feel like I'm repeating myself because I have talked about this a lot. So I'll try to add some things that maybe I haven't mentioned before. I've always loved podcasts ever since podcast first started. And I think it was with Coast to Coast AM, the late night radio talk show on AM radio back in the 90s. They 
art hosted by Art Bell, he was one of the first uh, radio show hosts to have his own website, and it was artbell.com. And eventually, so what we used to do, a lot of the listeners, is we would try to record it, and they would sell these players that would record radio shows. Because I lived on the East Coast at the time, and the show came on at 1 a.m. It was on from 1 to 5 a.m. And I couldn't always stay up. And they actually sold, gosh, this was in the mid-90s. They sold cassette tapes of the recorded shows. That's how far we've come where we could listen to a show on our phone or through an app um, or on our computer or on YouTube they used to have to put them on cassette tapes and then send them to people through the mail. So not 25, it was only 25 years ago. Anyway, so they started making them available on their website where you can stream the show. And that was, I don't think they called it a podcast at the time. Anyway, that actually, or I should say eventually morphed into podcasts. And so a lot of shows sprang up and that genre was, and still is, that show still exists, Coast to Coast AM, still on AM radio, and you can listen to it on the internet. Anyway, that is uh, in the genre of the paranormal and, um, and what do I want to say? Anyway, I forgot where I was going with that, but that was my inspiration that I wanted to do a show about Jung but, and hopefully we'll get into this later, not about what Jung wrote about or his theories, but conversations with Jungian analysts. So I would say my my main inspiration was Coast to Coast AM and Art Bell would interview people that had books coming out or movies coming out. And if if we go even further back, from the, then that is that I loved watching interviews on television and I would watch um, the daytime talk shows with my mom and with my grandmother where they were interviewing people. They were interviewing celebrities. Um, usually it was, you know, usually it was celebrities. I mean, I was a kid, so I wasn't going to watch, you know, documentaries with scientists. Eventually I did, but I loved seeing people, watching people, hearing people talk about their lives and their work and just knowing more about who that person was and and how they lived their life, you know, and, and it humanized them. And I didn't want to just see actors on television. I wanted to know more about the person. So I watched Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and Johnny Carson um, with with my with my mom, with my dad, with my grandparents. We watched those shows and the Barbara Walters special and 60 Minutes and, and shows like that. So that I guess preceded my listening to Art Bell. And then another inspiration for the podcast, well, actually, now that I'm thinking of it, there were a lot. Um, so just briefly, the interviews with Jungian analysts in the film Matter of Heart, which I didn't find out till years later, 
was taken from a series of interviews with Jungian analysts that were filmed by George and Suzanne Wagner of the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles. They went to Zurich with a film crew and they sat down with these first generation of analysts like C.A. Meyer and Marie-Louise von Franz and um, the wheelwrights and, and I can't think straight right now. So uh, I can't think of who else, Anila Yaffe. Um, so what I, what I want to say is that there were, there were, that, that was also an inspiration. And then there was, of course, inner city books. And I thought, well, how am I going to get analysts to do interviews? Well, these people are not, most of them, most of them are not used to doing interviews. They're used to maybe lecturing, but not doing interviews. I didn't know at the time about, I mean, I'm not the first person who had this idea, but I didn't know that. So there are, I can't think of the gentleman's name. He may even be an analyst himself. He's done books, a, a series of books uh, of interviews with, with Jungian analysts. And and then there was a shout out to Bonnie Bright of um, Depth Psychology Insights. And she did interviews with Jungian analysts that I didn't really know about. And then Shrinkwrap Radio was another inspiration for me. Uh, Dave Van Nuys in California. He he didn't just interview Jungian analysts, but he interviewed psychologists and and some Jungian analysts and lots of different kinds of psychologists and psychiatrists and and I would listen to those and and loved a lot of those interviews. But I wanted to like Inner City Books, just focus on Jungian analysts because I felt that they weren't well known. Most of the time when people ask me what my podcast is about, I tell them that I interview Jungian analysts and most people, I would say the overwhelming majority have no idea what I'm talking about. Even the word Jungian, they have no idea what that means. So I wanted to, (laughs) I wanted to bring it to a wider audience. Um, And where were we? with all of that. Let's see, inspiration. So inner city books inspired me because, oh, where I was going was that I thought, how am I going to get these analysts to do interviews? Well, some of them have written books. So why don't I ask them to do an interview about their book? So my original intention was to have each episode be about one book. But then I realized that I want the analysts to talk about themselves and how they got into this in the first place and what it took to get into this. And then I wanted the conversation to be more, uh, just kind of more organic, I guess. Uh, I didn't want it to be so restrictive. Um, So some of the episodes I did are about, really do focus on one book, but I put a lot of effort into that kind of focus and, but to the exclusion of other things. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I guess it depends on the situation. So I thought, how am I going to get these analysts to do interviews? I'll get them to talk about their book. Well, that wasn't as easy as that. 
it was a lot more difficult um, than I, I, I would think that they'd be interested in talking about their book and kind of promoting their book and telling people about it that might not be aware that it exists. And then I would put a link to the book on the website and it would help sell the book. Well, it's not as easy as that. So that was my original intention. Uh, I thought I would interview the inner city books authors. Well, some of them aren't around anymore. Some of them are retired. Um, some of them had written the book years ago and didn't really want to talk about it or wanted to talk about newer material. So it was a lot more difficult than I thought it was going to be. And uh, yeah, go let ahead. me, let me interject here uh, because I, I remember, so this is over five years now that you've been very dedicated to this. And I remember early on when you conceptualized this idea that you said you wanted to capture that first generation's voice. Yeah. Those people that were still very close or potentially closest to Jung and his mm -hmm. early work. Um, because they, as you said, they were, they were retiring or aging and you wanted to capture that, uh, forever on yeah on the internet which you know probably obviously didn't exist that option didn't exist for them many years ago and as new generations come in younger analysts mm. something is always going to be lost in translation and mm -hmm. and the newer generation is going to take things uh potentially in a different way or they're going to understand it differently so uh, I thought that that was a very unique approach to something that I, I felt had never been done before. So uh, you you did talk about some of the challenges that the podcast presents. Uh, do you have any others besides the two that you just mentioned? Well, yes, I do. But I I want to go back to something you just said, and I, I've heard it said that there are no original ideas. And I was definitely not the first person to think of doing a, a podcast where that, that, that involved interviews with Jungian analysts. I may have been the first to, to do exclusively with Jungian analysts. I'm not sure, but then I broke my own rule because I interviewed a woman who uh, is not a Jungian analyst, but uh, she did have her book published by Inner City Books. They made an exception for her. And I thought, okay, I can make an exception for her too. She is a Jungian psychotherapist. Her husband was, he's passed away since, but he was a Jungian analyst. And her book was about uh, Jung, his relationships, his love relationships, and the Red Book. And, um, so, and then I, I, I interviewed, uh, Justin Dewar about a book that he was writing about Herbert Crowley. So I broke my own rule and I'm not happy about that because I wanted, I'm kind of a purist and I wanted to stick to my original vision, but because I was doing this all myself, 
Um, and it was a lot more difficult than I had expected it to be. And it wasn't like my full-time job. I was doing the best I could and, um, and, and didn't, didn't hold true to that. And there were a lot of ups and downs along the way. Um, your question was, were there any other challenges? Is that what you asked? Yes. You mentioned, uh, some of the difficulties that, um, recruiting new guests, uh, you know, obtaining access to them, that that created some challenge for you on the podcast. And I was just, you know, what other things that, because uh, my next question, really, these are maybe on top of each other, is what, what were the things that surprised you over, over the last five plus years that you thought, geez, I, I thought this would have happened differently yeah. or this would have been easier, um, and things that obstacles, challenges that you mm-hmm. had to overcome or work mm-hmm. around or mm-hmm. work through that, you know, someone might not be considering. Right. Well, first of all, the nuts and bolts of it, I thought I would just plug a microphone into the back of my computer and just hit record and then just take that file and use that. And I didn't realize how complicated and difficult it was. And a lot of people helped me. I wrote to people that I knew who had podcasts and they were very uh, generous with answering uh, my questions. Actually, the host of Shrink Rap Radio, he helped me. Uh, Chris Brennan, who hosts the Astrology Podcast, he was very helpful. Eric Francis of Planet Waves FM. But they all had different answers to the same questions. As far as which microphone was the best? I mean, who can answer that? What's the best microphone to use? What headphones do you use? What recording software do you use? What editing software do you use? Then you need a place to put the podcast. Do you use one of the free services or do you do you create your own website and put it there? And thankfully, I had a lot of experience with creating websites that uh, procedure has changed throughout the years. And so I had to learn uh, a whole new way of doing it. I use Squarespace. I love Squarespace, but they just changed it again. Uh, if it ain't broke, guys, don't fix it. So they they just changed it, which is really annoying. So, um, but it's, it's more expensive because I have to pay for uh, the hosting service. And then you need a domain name and email address. It's so much more involved than I thought it was going to be. But my OCD kicks in because, and I don't, I'm not being glib there. Uh, you can do it simply, but I wanted to do it. I wanted to be very thorough in how I did it. Did it pay off? I don't know. Some people appreciate it, but that that's not really why I'm doing it. I mean, I, I want to like it. I designed that website to look the way I want it to look. I love a minimalist design. I love black and white. I love things to be very clean and very simple. And so the challenges were on the technical side, there were a lot. And it took me years to find the microphone that I liked. And then there, that, that the, it, there's an interface that I have to use between the computer and the microphone. 
Then there's another thing called a cloud lifter that I added on Chris Brennan's recommendation and his sound guy, Austin Kopik's brother. So there's just been little tweaks here and there. And um, so there's that. But in addition to all the technical stuff, which I wish I had somebody do for me because I would like to focus on the material and the guest and I can't because I have to watch the recording software, make sure that's running. And then when I open it to record, I have to make sure the latest version is downloaded. And then if anybody listened to the episode with Manisha Roy, my voice didn't get recorded because there was an update in the recording software and there was a, there was a bug in it and it wasn't working. And I thought it was working, but I I wasn't as thorough as I could have been and I got a little lazy and I just thought, well, it'll, it'll be fine. I tested it. I thought I knew what I was looking at. It didn't record me. Um, so that was a pretty major glitch that I had to kind of piece together and make it flow in the editing. So I'd say the biggest challenge to doing the podcast is the editing which I can't stand doing. That's why I'm not going to edit this episode. It's New Year's Eve and I wanted this to be a casual conversation and not, not, um, this isn't going to be perfect. So there's that. Yeah. uh, I actually had this question for later in the interview, but, but maybe uh, let's move it around. Okay. I can barely hear you all of a sudden. Tommy, are you there? Yes. How's oh, that better? Yes. Okay. Um, wh- why don't you walk us through the preparation that goes into mm-hmm. a show, mm-hmm. an interview? Um, you know, talk about how do you choose your guests? How do you find them? What happens before the interview and, and after the interview? And discuss the discuss your process. Because I, I know you well enough that you put a lot of preparation. You don't just phone it in, wing it. Uh, you spend a lot of time and I know pressure tends to mount as the, as the day gets closer for the interview. So maybe, uh, this is a good time to ask that question. If you could walk us through your process. It's really funny that you say that I don't phone it in because I had mentioned to you a few weeks ago. Well, I'm not going to say exactly when it was. Um, I, I just was, I had all this other stuff going on and I didn't, because I schedule these interviews pretty far ahead of time for the most part. And I just didn't want to do the interview. And I I was talking to you and I said, you know, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to phone it in. <laughs> Remember when I told you that? Yes. I said, I'm yes. just going to phone Which it in. Which is totally not your style. Not my style, but it turned out really well. And then later I said, hey, remember when I said I was going to phone in that interview? It it turned out to be one of the better ones. So uh, there's that. But my process, well, there were a lot of parts to that question. And one of them is something that I get asked a lot, which is how do I choose my guests? And maybe I don't get asked that specifically. What happens is people recommend guests to me, which triggers me for a number of reasons. And those are all, you know, my, I know myself and my triggers. And that is one of my triggers when people make a recommendation that I do something for who, for them. 
So <laughs> this podcast, it's not a business. I don't have subscribers as far as paying subscribers. For instance, there are some shows, there's some online radio shows and podcasts that I pay, I subscribe to, I pay every month so that I can listen to those shows or download those shows. I, and I, and there aren't a lot, but uh, there's shows that I love, um, but I didn't want to ask my listeners um, to pay for this. I wanted to give this away for free. And so with that said, I put a lot of time into these episodes. So I'm going to have to want, um, what am I trying to say here? It has to be something that interests me. I'm right. not doing it. I know this is this is going to sound harsh, but I'm not doing this to please the listeners. Now, if I were charging money and if people were paying me once a month to do this, then I might reach out and say, hey, who do you guys want to hear? Who do you want to have on? Because they're paying for it. <laughs> they're not. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then I'm going to put it out there for everybody else. I'm going to share it with everybody else. So as far as guests, I find analysts that I'm interested in talking with, that I'm interested in hearing what they have to say, either they have a book that I'm interested in, or what it's come to is that if I realize there's a topic that I haven't covered on this show in the past five and a half years, and there are a lot, uh, I will search around to see who's covered that topic. Now, just because somebody's a Jungian analyst doesn't mean that I'm automatically interested in them and want to interview them. I put a lot of time into the episodes and I don't want to keep harping on how hard this is and how much work I do because nobody wants to hear that. All work is hard. All work is time consuming. All work is difficult. But I do this podcast in my spare time and I do it because I want to do it. So I don't want to do an episode, because I've done this, around a person or a topic that doesn't interest me, because that is just painful. Because I used to do one episode per month, and I would spend a little bit of time here and there over the course of the month preparing, working on the website, on the episode page, reviewing their material. I write everybody's bio myself. I mean, yes, here and there I have cut and pasted, but then I usually go go through it and I've developed a kind of style of how I want my bios to read. And I'm very interested in this person's education and in where they went to school, what degrees they have, and any positions that they've held with let's say various Jung institutes or societies or training facilities, and then anything they've written. So I have uh, scheduled guests that I was not familiar with. Um, those are the worst episodes I've done with people who I found to be quite boring or not very, just not very what do I want to say that that maybe don't speak as well as someone who is has done a lot of lecturing or other interviews so 
those episodes are, are painful when I think about them and I wish I hadn't done them and they don't get a lot of views or downloads. Um, and then there are some analysts out there that are quite popular that I've never had on the podcast. I just, I can't do everything and I'm not interested in everybody for whatever reason. You know, it's like, what flavors of ice cream do you like? Why don't you like others? Are you, should I force you to eat, you know, Rocky Road ice cream when you don't like that? So I don't know if that was a really good comparison, but uh, there are, yeah, there are some analysts out there that I'm just not interested in their work, plain and simple. And there are some that, look, there are some that have said yes to the interview and then disappeared. There are some that have said yes and then changed their mind. There are some that have said yes, we recorded and then I never used it. I never turned it into an episode. That's happened a couple of times. Um, and there are a lot of analysts who have said no for whatever reason. And that was very difficult for me to understand in the beginning because I thought, why wouldn't you want to do this? But I totally understand that now. It's not easy to put yourself out there because once this gets recorded and uploaded, all sorts of people are listening. Believe me, I hear from them. And it's the people all over the world that write to me. You are basically a one person creative team. You do it from front to back. I know that in discussions with you in the past, the editing, things of that nature, the stuff that has to occur after the show, putting it on social media, that mm -hmm. can be a bit overwhelming. But it seems like after a few years, you have somewhat of a rhythm. Yeah, that is true. I do. So what? Like like a lot of things, people don't see because this is thing. These are things that happen behind the scenes. The all of the work that goes into it. So that when somebody says, "Hey, can you transcribe your show?" Oh. Uh, I I recall <laughs> that that uh, yeah. triggers you a word that you use mm -hmm. and upsets you. And and uh, of course they don't know that you're just a one person show and you're doing this. And as you said, you don't ask uh, any money for this and it's not a revenue generating uh, project. But so I just want to jump in there. It's not just the work. It's that to me, it, the whole, my whole message gets lost. Now I am biased. I love podcasts. I love uh, audio interviews because I get bored really easily and my mind loves to be occupied, but like everybody else, I have to do mundane things in life. I have to wash dishes. I have to wash and cut up vegetables. I have to wash my hair. I have to do my nails. I have to do these things with my hands where I don't know what, what other people do. What do other people do when they're washing dishes? I, I don't like television very much. So I either have the radio on, I use my Alexa device to listen to Boston sports radio because I do work with the New England Patriots. So I have to pay attention to what's going on. But when I'm not listening to, the, to that, 
I have my iPod in a Bose sound dock. It's really old. I love it. And I download, how do we get here? I download shows. Oh, because I like to listen to interviews or discussions while I'm doing things where I can't, if I'm not sitting at my computer working, or if I'm not reading, then I want to be listening to something interesting. So that is what my podcast is. And that is what I envision people doing with my podcast is I have had people say that they listen to it while they're driving. I've had a lot of people tell me that, that they listen to it while they're driving, because you can't read while you're driving. And you can't, you can't uh, write while you're, while you're, um, what did I want to say? While you're listening to the podcast, you can't write. So there's, there's a place for it. When, when you can't be reading or writing, you could be listening to the podcast. Right. So at the gym, there's lots of places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I haven't been to the gym in almost a year, so I had forgotten about that. Thank you for mentioning it because I used to do the, get on the cardio machine at the gym and I would listen to things on my, um, iPad. So that is what I envision. Now, not everybody wants to do that. So I need to make room for the fact that not everybody wants to do that. And some people would prefer to read a written transcript. Well, I don't do that, nor do I want to. I, another purpose for the podcast is for these analysts, especially somebody like James Hollis. Well, maybe that's not a good example because I'm sure that he's all over YouTube and people can uh, watch him, watch videos of him speaking. But there are other analysts that uh, people are familiar with their books, but they've actually never heard them speak. And so instead of reading what they've written, I think it's interesting to listen to them talk about what they've written or talk about their experience, talk about their work, talk about their life talk about themselves. I find that interesting. Not everybody's going to find that interesting. So there's that. And I forgot what else you asked me. Uh, I I wanted to actually go into the next question because okay. you touched on a few things, uh, uh, a few themes. And so what, what I was jotting down some notes as you were speaking. And and I wanted to ask you how your podcast differs from others in the Jungian community that have put out uh, this inform- some of this information as well. So you said you're you're not or never going to commercialize this. You're not going to get tied into uh, su- subscribers and uh, a, a corporation where like hats and t-shirts. Yeah, where Mugs you're going to yeah. have to do certain things. Um, I know that when we had talked in the past, you said that some of the feedback you get about your long intros, I happen to find those very helpful because oh, thank you. the majority of these people that you interview have credits that are incredibly impressive yeah. and you're not talking to just somebody that's been doing something for a couple years. These are career 
people in the Jungian community. And I know that you've also been doing some some giveaways where, you know, not only are you not asking for money for subscriptions, you're or subscribers, you're actually donating things to continue to put the word out there in different ways. Can you elaborate on that? Well, to be fair, I do want to say that no, um, this is not a commercial venture, but I am an Amazon associate, which means I do earn commission on um, purchases that are made through my website. So let me explain that a little bit. When I have a link to a book on speakingofyoung.com, that will take you to Amazon for the most part. There are some books that are not available on Amazon. If they're available someplace else, I'll put a link to that. But because I'm an Amazon associate and I can earn money that way, it is a minuscule amount of money. I'm embarrassed to tell you, um, I think I may have mentioned to you in the past how, how much I earn in commission and you know, will you, will you confirm, will you vouch for me to the audience that it is a minuscule amount of money? Uh, that's, that's correct. It's not anything that you could make a living off of or survive off of. And that, and again, that goes back to the original question that, Uh uh, that I asked was that wasn't the intent of this concept was you, you were not going into this as a business. You were going into this, which again is unique in that you wanted to keep the original word out there. So these apostles, disciples, of Jung that you are interviewing uh, are at a certain age. Some are retiring from their practices. They're not writing books anymore, articles, or speaking, and and you are keeping that alive. And that's what makes it very unique. Well, thank you for saying that, but I do I do want to be fair and. Uh, something my analyst taught me is to always look at the other side. So I do want to put it out there that I do earn commission from any purchase made on Amazon after somebody clicks on one of my Amazon links. Now it is at no extra cost to the consumer. So you're not paying anything extra. Amazon just gives me a a small percentage of that purchase. I don't even know what that percentage is. You can look it up. So I'm just a regular Amazon associate. The other place I, so, and and that could get annoying where I am constantly posting Amazon links and now they're requiring us to um, make very clear that this is an ad, it's an advertisement. So hashtag ad, A-D, is enough to warrant that. Okay, so there's that. And then I do earn commission. So there's three ways that I am earning some money. Again, it's very minuscule. I can't even buy a pair of shoes with the in a month with the, with the amount of um, commission I earn. But the classes, the well, they're online video courses through the Jung Society of Washington, D.C., with, that's been around for, I don't know, years, 40 years, something like that, maybe even longer. I think it's one of the oldest Jung societies in the United States. So 
they have a series of online video courses just with two instructors. One's not even a Jungian analyst, but one is, and it's James Hollis. Four courses that he offers, and then three with Susan Tiber, uh I can't pronounce her last name, Tibergian, I believe. She's in Switzerland. I think she's an American, but she is a world-renowned writing instructor. And she offers three courses. So there is actually a page on Speaking of Jung's website called Courses. If you look at the menu items at the top of the page, when you go to the main page, and it's actually on every page, if you click on Courses, it will show you all seven courses, their description, and then the link. If you click on the link, it'll take you to the page to register. You can start the courses anytime and you can go at your own pace and there's no expiration. You'll have lifetime access to the material. And I do earn commission on uh, when I sell those courses and they're wonderful and um, you, they're online learning and they're not cheap, but you're getting um, a really... Uh, well-seasoned, um, mature, educated teacher that is imparting um, some great wisdom there. So I do earn money through that. And then there's also a donate button on Speaking of Young's website. And I do get donations, I have to say. I greatly appreciate them. I appreciate them more than anything else because somebody's giving me their money. And I have a few donors that, uh, that do recurring, like every month, I get an automatic donation from them. That's very helpful. It's very kind of them to do that. They're very generous to do it. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I mean, it costs me money to do this, this podcast, just like everything costs money. So I don't mean mm -hmm. to be complaining, uh, but it, 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 nothing's free. So the website costs money. The equipment costs money. There's always something that costs money. And The giveaways cost money. Well, now with the giveaways, how that started is Chiron Publications put out a new book series uh, based on this interest from the BTS fans. And also the book that started it all, Jung's Map of the Soul, written by Murray Stein, was published in 1998. And that publisher went out of business. I think the book is still in print. I'm pretty sure it is. But he wanted to update it so and, and simplify it. Jung's Map of the Soul is, it's, it's not an easy read, I have to say, but it's very thorough. And so Chiron Publications, Murray Stein started Chiron Publications with another guest of the podcast who actually just passed away in September, Nathan Schwartz Salant. The two of them started Chiron, but then they sold it. Um, when Murray Stein, he lived here in Chicago for many years and decided to relocate to Zurich. He sold it to two psychiatrists in Asheville, North Carolina, who I'm going to be interviewing next week because they are publishing the collected works of Marie-Louise von Franz, a 28-volume series over the course of 10 years. They're going to take 10 years to release it, and the first volume uh, will be published on January 4th of 2021. 
2021. How do we say that now? It's the first time I've said that out loud, I think. Um, so I have no idea where I was going with that. Um, what were we talking about? We were talking about the giveaways. The giveaways. And... Oh, thank you. Thank you. So let me just finish that. So Chiron came out with a series of these little paperback books, these thin paperback books, based on Murray Stein's Jung's Map of the Soul book. And in conjunction with BTS's album, Map of the Soul Persona, because they then came out with a song called Map of the Soul Shadow and Map of the Soul, no, not Map of the Soul Shadow. They came out, their album was titled Map of the Soul Persona. And then we thought the next album was going to be Map of the Soul Shadow. But the next album was actually Map of the Soul 7. And it included the song Interlude Shadow and Outro Ego. So Dr. Stein and I did episodes. I'm laughing because, and you've met Murray Stein. He's he's just up for anything. I love him. He's he's so cooperative, enthusiastic, right? right? So yeah, he's great. And he's just up for anything. So I think he's been on the podcast like nine times. I love it. So um, anyway, long story short, in the beginning of those books, what Chiron did is speaking of transcribing, they transcribed the episodes I did with Murray Stein on that topic. So the first book in the series is called Map of the Soul, Persona. Um, gosh, I should have this. Um, something about the masks we wear. I don't I'm gonna have to look it up. And they transcribed the interview and it's in the book. And then they came out with the second volume on the shadow. Again, they transcribed the episode Dr. Stein and I did about the shadow. That's in the book. And then they did it with ego. And then they did kind of a compilation. It's a much thicker book. The fourth volume is called Map of the Soul 7, Persona, Shadow, and Ego in the World of BTS. So those four books are out there. And if anybody's interested, you can go to speakingofyoung.com and click on the BTS page. I created a page with all of the BTS material, all of the episodes that I did about BTS. The first book is titled Map of the Soul Persona, Our Many Faces. The second volume, Map of the Soul Shadow, Our Hidden Self. The third volume, Map of the Soul Ego, I Am. And then Map of the Soul 7, Persona, Shadow, and Ego in the World of BTS. And yes, the page on Speaking of Jung's website, it's just titled BTS. If you look in the on the menu bar, you can just click on BTS. Some of the episodes were translated into other languages and with permission. So if anybody wants to transcribe and or transcribe and translate an episode, please contact me for permission to do that because I need to protect my guest too. So uh, some of those episodes were translated into Korean, Vietnamese, Japanese, and Russian. And the giveaway started because Chiron sent me some free copies to give away. So I did that. 
And I decided to do a giveaway every week because it made people happy. And it made me happy too. Um, But once I ran out of those books, it got a little hairy because postage gets a little tricky. And then COVID, the COVID lockdown started. And the, I don't know if people that are not in the US are aware that our postal system got pretty messed up. It got, well, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there about what happened to it, but um, it was bogged down. And also I didn't want to be going to the post office. And so what I started doing where I'm going with this is that I started giving away Kindle editions and you don't need a Kindle device. You just need the app. And I have the Kindle and the Kindle app is free. I have it on my Mac desktop computer. I have the app on my iPhone and on my iPad. It's free. So in order to read a Kindle book, you just need the Kindle app. So I was giving away Kindle editions. And then Chiron was sending me um, other books that they were publishing. Marie Stein has, it's not called The Collected Works. I think it's The Collected Writings. Um, So sometimes uh, I gave away that. I also gave away Jung's Map of the Soul, Kindle edition. Um, But anyway, all of those Map of the Soul books that I mentioned by Chiron, those are also available as Kindle editions. Okay, there's that. Now, I sometimes was scrounging around for things to give away, but the, the, the easy thing to do is to do it via Amazon. And I would just use my Amazon commissions for the giveaway. Now I do earn Amazon commissions in other countries and those funds are just kind of sitting there. For instance, I just did, um, because of the release of the collected works of Marie-Louise von Franz next month, the first volume, I wanted to give away my favorite von Franz book, which is titled The Cat. That's an inner city books title. Um, I had a bunch of funds sitting in my Amazon Germany account. So I thought, and I've done this before, because Amazon Germany offers free delivery to a bunch of countries in Western Europe. But the cat was only available through a third party seller. And they only delivered um, to Germany. It was I couldn't even pay to have it delivered someplace else. So that was only open to German, Germany addresses, German residents. No, anybody with a Germany address was eligible. Now that wasn't a lot of people, but that's what I did. I used my Amazon Germany commission to pay for that giveaway. But again, it makes people happy. It makes me happy. It, it um, allows for interaction on Twitter. It draws attention to the book and that's great. I love doing that. Um, and then I think a couple weeks ago, I gave away, um, the BTS members have these little dolls. I think Mattel made little dolls for each of them. And there was one of them on sale on Amazon. So I gave that away that week. So I'd, I'd like to stick with the, the, uh, social media aspect of, of things and how they relate to, to your, to your work. And 
certainly the internet is very undisciplined. There are not a lot of rules and regulations and it's somewhat of a free for all. And in some ways it's created some laziness for lack of a better word, uh, an approach to work ethic, such as instead of somebody actually going on the internet to do their own research, their own reading, They'll ask others to do it. They don't want to do the work. Give me yeah. my quick answer. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to the next thing. And uh, do you do you find that uh, as well in in what you do? And uh, because the the question after that is, I do want to get back to uh, and elaborate. Have you elaborate a little bit more on the feedback that you get from your guests and from your listeners? But uh, what's uh, how have you tied the uh, beyond the giveaways, sure. the the social media aspect yeah. to to the Jungian world because with uh, and we said this earlier in the interview the I mean Jung didn't have access to the internet how does he get the word out how to how do how do they uh, uh, get more disciples, people into apostles, people into their their line patience. of thinking, their their work, patience, uh, the, yeah. the whole thing. So, uh, I think it was a lot it, slower movement back then. Now everything's a lot faster, but I it, I think it was one person at a time, and I think that that's right. why some of the analysts are resistant to what I do because they don't want to speak to the masses. The masses aren't going to understand. I. I was told very early on in my analysis about the collective. The collective will never understand what you're doing. Never. So stop, what? not stop, wait a minute, not stop looking for their approval, not stop waiting for their approval, but because my analyst wouldn't frame it that way. I mean, you don't tell somebody to stop doing something. That's not, that's not helpful, but she would constantly remind me that it's not going to happen. The collective will never understand what you are doing. The collective is to me kind of the opposite of individuation, which is the goal of analysis. And, right. and none of us are fully individuated. That's another thing about social media. And you can tell I'm drinking coffee because I'm starting to talk faster. People will call me out for not being individuated. Of course I'm not individuated. Who is? Who is individuated? Who is enlightened? I, I used to hang out with these Tibetan Buddhist monks when they were on tour in the US. And one of, one of the Geshis from the monastery, that not even the monastery that I was involved with, they were just here kind of randomly and... I sat down with one of them because they did this mandala at the Navy Pier. Uh, remember I told you about that? That was, wow, yes. that was back in 2011. That that wasn't even my group. And he was this big, tall, thin guy, and he spoke English. And he was willing to talk to me. A lot of them just aren't that willing to talk because why would you impart that kind of wisdom and knowledge on just anybody that wasn't ready for it? And this is a Geshe Larampa. That's the equivalent to their PhD. It takes them 20 years to earn it, and you don't get another try, right? 
you get one shot at it. And I actually did an episode, one of these quarantine editions, Q6, with a Geshe LaRampa who, I mean, I'm in touch with him. I used to talk to him every day on Skype. Now it's around once a week. But anyway, the Geshe at the Navy Pier back in 2011, he said, enlightenment is hard. It's hard work. It's very difficult. I mean, and I said, even for you, he said, yes. Here's a guy that was born in Tibet and he had to escape and walk to India when he was young and grew up in this monastery. And now he's in his 40s or 50s and he's sitting across the table from me telling me how hard enlightenment is. He's not enlightened. He hasn't achieved enlightenment. So these people that think that you know, you can do that after a few sessions or taking a few classes or reading a few books that that's that that's that's not accurate. I've heard you talk about questions that you get on the let's say through social media mm-hmm. and maybe for the for the audience. How do you handle them? Are, are there reoccurring themes to these questions? The reoccurring theme is that people ask me questions that I am not capable of answering. And also, that, what, what do you mean by not capable? Well, that they're, that they're impossible to answer. So it, it just, first of all, it tips me off that this person's never been analyzed. I'm sorry. Okay. But find an analyst. That That's another thing that I wanted to do with this podcast is, and we haven't even gotten into this and we're already o- over an hour in, but I I think I put this in the notes that I feel like I failed because somebody asked me something on social media and I thought, oh no, I know what it was. I've been the guest on oh, probably about a dozen podcasts over the years. And I'm not going to say which one this was because I don't want to disparage this person in any way. They were very kind to me. And I'm not even going to say he or she um, said that they were a listener, speaking of young listener, and they would love it if I'd be a guest on their show. And I said, yes. And when I got on there, they didn't know anything. There's no way they could have listened to any of the episodes because they didn't know, they didn't understand even what a Jungian analyst was. So one of my goals with this podcast, because I underwent a very lengthy analysis, I wanted to let people know that it is an alternative to the pop psychology that's out there, to the managed care that's out there where your insurance company will only um, will only pay for six sessions a year. What's that going to do? Six sessions. Right. I mean, deep work at depth takes a lot of time. I had sessions with one analyst for 17 years. It takes a long time. And so I wanted to feature Jungian analysts and I started talking about this over the past year that my fear is that I went wrong because I was focusing on the books they wrote and not the work that they did in analysis. And so I wanted to shift gears and talk more about that. And 
whose books I would recommend now, really the only books I would recommend now are Daryl Sharp's because Daryl applied it. He applied Jung's theories, Jung's concepts, Jung's writings to everyday life. He made it real. And it's in all of his books. And that is what I find useful. When people come at me on social media about some obscure passage in volume 9-2 of Jung's collected works, Aeon, and they come at me with some philosophical discussion, I'm not a Jung scholar. I didn't read Aeon cover to cover. I can't talk to you about Aeon. I can talk to you about the work I did in analysis. I can talk to you about how the work that I did in analysis helped me manage my relationships with my family, look at my relationship with my father in a different light, you know, why I get triggered by my sister-in-law. I can talk about that, but to, to, to just get up in your head about looking at Jung's work philosophically and what did it mean? How do you live it? How do you use it to look at yourself and your, how you project onto others, the things about yourself that you don't want to look at or talk about or work on, but you want to see it in others and bash others, but you don't want to look at how does this apply to me? That's what we did in analysis. Yes, it sounds harsh, but I think that's why the world is in the state that it's in right now is because no one's cleaning up their own act or very few are, put it that way. Very few are looking at themselves. So, but, and that's not popular. And that's when I lose people. Yeah. You, you mentioned Murray Stein, James Hollis, Daryl Sharp. Do you have some favorite episodes? Uh, what makes them special? And did you, you know, on top of that, that's like three questions in one, are there certain topics that are more difficult than others? My favorite, so, yeah. Favorite episodes. Okay. Favorite episodes. Um, and I think I said that, well, I can't remember when I, oh, I said this last year, about a year ago at this time, I did a listener roundtable episode with longtime listeners of the podcast, also with television director Norman Buckley and um, art professor Timothy Hall and uh, some longtime listeners that I met on Twitter. And I, I mentioned this to them. And in preparation to record that episode, I listened to the very first episode of Speaking of Jung again. And that was with Daryl Sharp, and we recorded that in person in Toronto, and Liz was there. She was there in the room, and you can actually hear her uh, in, in that episode. And when I listened to that again... You're getting emotional, I could yeah, tell. Yeah, because it was like 50 episodes later, and... I re-listened to that episode and I realized that everything I wanted to accomplish with this podcast is in that episode. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And that's episode one. And every time I look at the analytics, 
on the website that I think that's the most listened to episode I've ever done. And speaking of that, so favorites, um, I, I can't stand it when I say, um, I used to go through why I probably hate editing is because when I first started doing this podcast and I would do the editing, it would take me like a week to edit each episode. I would take out every um that I said and my guest said. And also if a pause was too long, I would edit that out too until I realized that's part of it. The pa- pauses are very telling. Also, it gives you time to absorb or process what was just said. So I try to leave all of that in there. But the Sonu Shamdasani episode that I did in October, I I I'm I feel like I'm done. I mean I'm I I it will it it will never get and I did four with James Hollis and a bunch of uh analysts I've interviewed have passed away. Fred Gustafson as I mentioned, Nathan Schwartz-Salant, John Dorley, Daryl, somebody else who I'm forgetting. So, I mean, I I I have those episodes and they're- Yeah, even even more, yeah, the the importance, that's where I was- I was going to go with my next comment of that these are archived. This is the- You know, the basement of the Vatican, this stuff is is out there forever for generations to come. Right, right. And and the- so I have I have uh I have one more Okay. Uh group of of questions. Cause you, you touched on this earlier and uh we didn't really delve into it, but I, I am interested in uh you mentioned that uh, so, so this is, let me just say this, this umbrella of, it's a feedback question. So uh, you you have said, and you said in this interview that feedback from the guests, it's somewhat for some of them, it's they're done with the episode and oh. you don't, you don't hear from them again right. and you don't right. get any feedback. Uh, but yeah. I, I also know that from this community you do get because you've shared some of the emails from some of those guests uh some very inspiring emails about keeping this work alive how much they appreciate it and there is an authentic uh connection there with with those words do do you want to elaborate on that well i and i do i do get those emails from the guests and i i appreciate that but of course we don't tend to put much weight on that. We put more weight on the things that are wrong and the things that are lacking and the problems. The problems are what get our attention, right? So mm-hmm. when somebody is is thankful or saying, thank you for keeping this work alive, I think, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It's the people, it's the analysts that I've done episodes with that I I have this running list in my head that I have never heard from again. I know they're still alive. I know they're still out there. But once the episode has been recorded and I always send a follow-up after it's finished, it's been edited and posted, I, I, I shouldn't be talking about this, and I send it to them and then I never hear from them again, I that that was very difficult for me to accept, but mm. everybody's different and Jungian analysts yeah. are no different than that. 
all yeah. these different personalities. Um, but it's and, and strange. Feed, and f- feedback from the listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you have shared some emails again from yeah. from listeners, as you said earlier, all over the globe, yes. all over the world. There's a there's a huge connectivity that's that's going on here, uh, which is wonderful to see. And uh, some of those are very heart wrenching in that yeah. they're thanking you for saving their lives, and yeah. you helped me go into a analysis. Yeah. And uh, how does that? resonate with you and how do you feel about that well it it's uh i appreciate them sharing that with me i'm sure that there there's uh, on both sides people don't put that into writing and don't share it with me so we don't know about those right and that it's been helpful that's great uh i have been on on their end of it where I am immensely grateful to a lot of people in my life for helping me or showing me the way or teaching me something. And it's usually the hard stuff. It's usually the hard stuff that they taught me that that pushed me or challenged me. Yeah. That's the stuff I'm most grateful for, not the stuff that was handed right. to me. I mean, I am grateful to the things that, are, that were handed to me, but but people who stay with me people who I've known for a very long time. And I I, I feel lucky enough to have those people in my life that have been with me for decades. My friends mean so much to me because you you choose your friends, you know, the people that aren't your family, you choose them and you choose them every day. And the people that you, you can't, you can't run away when things get hard. You can't leave. You can't, sever the relationship when things get hard no matter how hard because right because there's something in there for you yeah we we all have to be first responders when that when that stuff emerges we have to run into the fire or where the gunshots are you you have to go into the difficult space but as i learned in my analysis because i wasn't strong enough in the beginning you've got to build that you've got to build up your ego strength so that you're strong enough to do that. And I didn't know that. And I wasn't strong enough in the beginning. And so I was in analysis for as long as I was in there for, because I had to do all of that preliminary work first before I could really get to the hard stuff. So I would just say, be patient with yourself. Don't give in to what the mainstream, uh, I wanted to say the mainstream media, but what the the popular culture is dishing out, there are alternatives. And also about here in the United States, we have to pay for our health care. And people who would like to enter into analysis, it's probably not going to get covered by your insurance. It wasn't covered by mine. I paid for it. But I mean, what's more important? I, I used to say this a lot in the beginning of the podcast, and then I stopped talking about it. What is more important than you paying for something that is going to benefit you as far as your quality of life, but also it's going to affect everybody around you? Because 
if you take care of your stuff, then other people won't have to, you won't have to ask other people to take care of it for you. you right. Know, you'll be less of a burden. We think about being a burden on people when we get sick, but what about when we're acting out or when we mess up because we're neurotic and, and you know what I mean? So I, your mental health is just as important as your physical health. Well, you have given me well over an hour of your time, which is greatly appreciated. Uh, before I give you the last word, I just want to wish everyone a happy new year. I know a lot of people are looking forward to 2020 coming to an end. Uh, we're going to be heading into 2021 with a lot of the same problems uh, today that we have, uh, we will have tomorrow and we'll have to keep working through those. So, I wanted to give you the last word to your listeners and your guests. Well, uh, because you've known me for a long time, you know that uh, I am not an optimist. I always see the dark side. And uh, I just want to remind people that just because the calendar will read 2021 doesn't mean any kind of reset button has been hit. Uh, we still have the same issues that we're going to have the same issues tomorrow, like you said, that we have today. So um, I, I, ju I just want to remind people of that and to not put pressure on yourself to be happy, but to be human. Okay. Well, this is Tommy Lassels signing off for this episode. And again, thank you for your patience and giving us this uh, in-depth interview. So I will hang up and I know you have Liz on hold. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. Hi, Liz. Hi, Laura. Hi. <laughs> Happy New Year's Eve. It's New Year's Eve. And you know what? Maybe you can clear this up because mm -hmm. you're good at this kind of stuff. I was calling this New Year's Eve 2020 because technically it's December 31st, 2020. Mm. And it's New Year's Eve, which is the evening before New Year's Day. So we are still in 2020. But then I started seeing it referred to online as New Year's Eve 2021. Mm. Which is it? Oh, well, it's the still point between one year starting and the other year ending. But mm -hmm. um, I would tend to say that if you're a stickler, you just have to stick around until 1201 if you want to be technically correct. And say, um, welcome to New Year's Day 2021. Right, right. So this, this isn't this New Year's Eve 2020? Yeah, you know what? When when you put it like that, I believe that it is because December thirty first does not does not end until midnight, and mm -hmm. until then it is twenty twenty. Yeah, so seems I, to make sense. Makes sense. And I bought a ticket for the online concert, the New Year's Eve concert, uh, the K pop New Year's Eve concert. Oh, so but aren't they a day ahead? Yeah. Well, it started at. 6.30 this morning, 6.30 Chicago time. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot of different K-pop groups. I, of course, was just in it for BTS. And it, <laughs> they did not disappoint. It was really, oh. 
really awesome. The production. So you've already had your New Year's Eve. Yeah. Yeah. So it was three hours. It was from 6.30 to 9.30 a.m. And it was wonderful. I sat at my big desktop computer and put it full screen. And they, they do such a great job. You know, that in itself is an interesting topic. I was so fascinated to watch that explode on your Twitter feed. Mm. That mm. was so interesting. I remember the day I looked at it and you you posted, you know, I think that the new BTS album is a reference to Murray Stein's book, yeah. Map of the Soul. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you started getting four or 5,000 hits on all of your Twitter yeah. posts. And yeah. then we got to know them a bit. And oh my gosh, are they really fantastic people. It's like a brain trust that spans the globe. I couldn't believe it. The way they were crunching Jungian theory, I could not believe it. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're so uh, thoughtful and Mm -hmm. curious Mm -hmm. and loyal. And there there was a little blip there. Uh, There was everybody, I think, had a blip at some point this year. But... um, yeah, because it was it was a, a lot of up and down, but um, that mm. was so the the BTS explosion was in March of 2019, so it's been almost two years, and mm-hmm. I stuck with it because I genuinely adore them. I I love the band, the seven members, mm. and the fans, Army. Well, we got to know the people in the Army Help Center a bit, right, and. My gosh, do they do good work. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I mean, they really take care of each other. Yeah. And I love the messaging. I mean, there are just so few people messaging about mental health and self-acceptance and, you know, equality rights. And and actually, I mean, they're actually doing that work. I mean, the way they've mobilized for charities around the globe, it's really, they do as much as some governments. They do more than some governments. Yeah. I'm very impressed with them. Yes, I am too. And 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 that's why I've stuck with it. Uh, it's definitely worth it. And I know that there are some people who don't understand what I'm doing. And it's interesting, the difference between Twitter and Facebook. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> I, can, I can talk about BTS on Twitter. And I was tweeting this morning as I was, as I was watching the concert, I was mm-hmm. commenting. But every time I post something on Facebook about BTS, crickets. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been yeah. really supportive, but people just don't get it. And they just look at maybe, maybe they're looking at it on the surface and thinking, what's well, a bunch of young Korean boys singing and dancing, wearing makeup and women's clothing. Well, you got to, like with everything <laughs> else, you've got to look a little deeper than that. Just and, look at their reading list. Yeah. That is not a lightweight reading list. Yeah. But yeah, my gift to myself in 2021 is to tell Facebook to kiss off once and for all. What's going on with this delete Facebook? Um, well, I just read a, an article in Mother Jones today about how they are um, actually suppressing mm-hmm. certain kinds of media or like journalistic media okay. so that, you know, your bubble isn't even your bubble anymore. You know, um, it's one thing to post things that only certain people see but they're actually you know suppressing uh certain kinds of news and not getting rid of other kinds of news that isn't accurate Mm. so it's um it's just not seeming very um 
I don't know. It's more trouble than it's worth for me to try to figure out Facebook. I don't think they need my data. Well, but I, I love Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I love Twitter too. And I'm on Facebook. Be- Actually, I was talking to Tommy Lassels in the first part of this interview, and I mentioned the monks, the Tibetan monks. and Oh, yeah. The Tibetan monk that I met that was part of a totally different group when they were here in Chicago in 2011. And after... So they they were here on two-year visas, and 2011 was their second year. So I met a bunch of them at the end of 2010, but then I met other groups in 2011 right before they left. And so we keep in touch on Facebook. And so that's really the reason why I don't want to leave Facebook, because it's a great way to keep in touch with people in other countries Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a free way to communicate. It is. It's true. It's a really good one. Um, WhatsApp has better encryption. Um, you know, there there are alternatives. But mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, how does one meet um, Buddhist monks in ch- Chicago? Oh, I actually <laughs> how, met them in Santa is, Fe. Did you, I should listen to the podcast because you probably explained it in there, right? Yeah, I did. So Sorry. that's... That's okay. That's okay. It's episode Q6. It's not an easy listen because I'm talking to Geshe Damcho Gyaltsen. He and I are around the same age and he was part of the group that I met uh, in 2011 from Drepung Losling Monastery. Uh, Gosh, kind of a long story, but... (laughs) Yeah, but um, one of the things they do when they're on tour, well, they do a lot of things very briefly. They visit usually universities or big churches, and they kind of set up there for a few days. It takes them an average of four days to make a sand mandala. And yeah, they so they're doing that to spread awareness of the Tibetan traditions. They also Mm -hmm. have a stage performance show where they play musical instruments and and dance and traditional tibetan clothing it's mm. a two-hour performance called sacred music sacred dance and so great. yeah the guy the the guy the monk that that is on episode q6 with me and marika hensley joined us uh he i met him what do I want to say? He kind of, we kind of bonded and connected because we're just, I don't know, it's kindred spirits. And uh-huh. he wound up coming to my home to do one of the things that they do is when they're on tour is they do house blessings. Wow. And so that's kind of a way for them to raise money too, because you give them an offering, you know, you don't, they don't uh-huh. charge money for it, but you give them an offering. And so, uh, the building that I was living in at the time was having some issues. And I thought, oh, I'll ask them to come over and, and do a blessing on the building. And they did. This group of 11 monks huh. came over and uh, and I bought them lunch. And, and we sat on the floor and we ate and they did chanting. And that was in October of 2011. And I still keep in touch with him to this day. Huh. And we we see each other on Skype, you know, and he wants to get better with his English and he's there at the monastery in South India with 3000 other monks and they're not speaking English. So he doesn't want Uh to lose it. Yeah. 
So he practices speaking English just by having conversations with me on Skype. Um, but how oh. we met was because, um, let's see, I had to get out of Chicago for the weekend uh, in December of 2010. And uh, I was taken away. <laughs> I was not abducted. I was taken on a long weekend. <laughs> I was taken away. You um, seem the passive. Why? <laughs> yes, on a long for for a long weekend uh, in mm -hmm. Santa Fe, in December of 2010. And while I was there, I went in my favorite clothing store, which isn't there anymore. It's called Origins, or maybe they moved. And there was a flyer taped to the door saying that there was a, I was, I was kind of in a, in a, well, there was a lot going on in my life. I was very unhappy at the time. And it said something about a meditation and chanting. And I yeah. thought I, I could really use that right now. And it was across the street and it was like at five o'clock and I went over there and it changed my life. I mean, I, it was free and you go there and you watch them work on this sand mandala on this square table and I mean, you can google it you can google yeah. the mystical arts of tibet and see lots and lots of photos or you can actually i put that episode episode q6 on the youtube channel uh -huh. my youtube channel Jungian and laura and i did i think i did put a lot of photos of geshe damcho his group the mandalas that they made and and just you can see their clothing and their musical instruments and and some of the places that they visited. So I met another group there, and that group leader is actually a Rinpoche, a Tulku, which is mm -hmm. a reincarnated higher level monk. And he and I are still Facebook friends, um, but he mm. he's actually since moved to Texas and started a Tibetan Buddhist Center in Texas. And so it, it was just because I was going through a difficult time in my life, let's just put it that way, I found comfort in them. And after they worked on the mandala, I think it was at five o'clock, they all sat in a row and we sat in front of them and they chanted and then we meditated together. And again, I found that to be so comforting. And they sold t-shirts and jewelry and books and Tibetan, uh, Tibetan, what? Tibetan, like the, the Dorji. Yes, bowls and th these hand instruments. Yeah, I know those ones you mean that. I think they represent something about the Dharma. Yeah. It's like a five-pointed item. Yeah. And, and another end. thing, I just want to add this one more thing, is to raise money for their educational foundation, you could sponsor a monk. And I am still, to this day, I got a bunch of messages from him today. He calls me mom. I <laughs> sponsored a monk. Yeah. He's, um, let's see, he's 23 years old now. Mm -hmm. and uh, we keep in touch, and I've watched him grow up, and he sends me photos, you know, and sometimes we, 
use Facebook Messenger video and I get to see him and he shows me the monastery and what he's doing and they they do debate outside. It's a very physical activity. That's also part of their sacred music, sacred dance. They yeah. debate. Now, it's all in Tibetan, so we can't understand what, what they're saying, but he learned English at the monastery so we can speak to each other, cool. which is great. We couldn't in the beginning when I first found him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's such a long story. I'm sorry. Didn't well, no, to go on I'm from the Great that. White North. I'm the one that should be sorry. <laughs> Canadians are always sorry for something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just, you know, on the topic of social media and the mm-hmm. wonderful things that it makes possible. Yes. So I was reminiscing baseball. on the fifth anniversary of your podcast um, about the way we bumped into each other on social media. And I didn't know if that would be interesting for you to hear after all these years. But um, I uh, I guess I was procrastinating around Inner City Books headquarters. And I thought, you know, they don't have a Twitter account. And I love Twitter. So I'm going to start an ICB account and see what happens. What year and was I just, that? It would be 2014. Okay. And... Uh, uh, I just looked at the hashtag Jungian and anybody who looked oh. like they were posting anything interesting, I just contacted directly and said, who do I follow on Twitter? <laughs> and I bumped into Charlie Arthur. Oh, okay. And uh, I said, look, I don't have time to find all these people. So just tell me who are the good people to follow. And he said, oh, well, you must start with Jungian Laura. And I guess at, on that day, you were doing a really good job of tweeting uh, about synchronicity as oh, written right. in Gary Sparks' book, um, uh, At the Heart of Matter. Yes. And I just I just really liked the way you picked the quotes out. And Thank so you. I started from there. And, um, and then, of course, I bumped into Tasha Tolman in, uh, at the Applied Young Center. And yeah. she sort of taught me everything I know about social media. But I just thought it was so neat how... I don't know why Twitter does this and Facebook doesn't, mm-hmm. but it just seems yeah. like it's much more immediate, maybe yes. because because you have to do it in pithy sentences. Right. I mean, when, when we started, it was 140 characters. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was difficult. And, uh, it was difficult, especially, I mean, most Jungian writers don't lend themselves to no. sound bites at all. No. And... Um, I just really loved the way I could talk to people all over the world. And it was just sort of like immediately contacting people's, you know, essence as opposed to, um, you know, all the daily stuff we drag around. And so, um, and then when you had the idea for the podcast, I I thought it was really a great idea and I couldn't believe you were willing to, you know, come all the way up to Toronto for an interview. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah, I've I've always been kind of a just jump in a plane. And and (laughs) I want to explain that just just briefly. It's Mm -hmm. because I think it's because my father, for his job, flew all the time every week. It was it was nothing to just jump in a plane. And so I've been doing that since I was five years old. So it's, it's just kind of natural to me. I know not mm-hmm. a lot of people are used to flying, but to me, flying was just like jumping in a car, jump on a plane. Things have changed. I haven't been on a plane <laughs> since February. It's now mm-hmm. December. I think that's the longest. I, I figured this out. It's the longest I've ever gone in my life since I was five years old without wow. being on a plane. So, yeah, that wow. was just- 
like nothing. I, I was, you know, going to talk about the Toronto trip, but I'm really interested in the the pilgrimage you made to Switzerland. No, you've been more than once, though, right? No, no, just that it was one that time. one time. <laughs> yes. I would just love to know what it was like to stand on that ground. Interesting, you mentioned that because I did do an episode all mm-hmm. about that trip. It's episode eleven, and I had a friend, just like I had Tommy. Mm-hmm. do the first half of this episode. I had a friend, uh, when did I record that? Must have been in um, early 2016. Yeah, early uh-huh. 2016, about that trip to Zurich, which did not go as planned. Um, there was a snowstorm that day. And my flight, uh, I'm as as much as I've flown, I have been delayed maybe a handful of times in my life. I've just been really fortunate that way, but that it took me three days to get to Zurich because we sat on the runway for eight hours during the snowstorm, which is unheard of because usually they don't let people stay on, on board while the plane was at the gate. Well, I think we were allowed because the plane was still at the gate, but they wouldn't let us off the plane. Uh, to go in, into the terminal. So because they kept thinking that we were going to take off, you know, in, in, in 20 minutes and half an hour, we were going to get cleared for takeoff and we didn't. And so we sat on the plane for eight hours and then we had to deplane. Uh, wow. And we had to um, get on a different plane and fly to Washington, D.C. And then we had to spend the night in Washington, D.C., and then we couldn't even fly to Zurich the next day. We had to wait for the following evening. Anyway, wow. it, it was it was a very difficult trip, but it was symbolic. I, I You mentioned Charlie Arthur, and he's been a wonderful friend, and and we, we look at stuff like that together. And so uh, the, the difficulty of the journey was part of it, how difficult it was for me to get there. And then flying at night and seeing Orion and Sirius. I woke up. I was actually in business class. And so I was, the the seats recline and, I mean, into Uh. a bed, basically. And I had a window seat and something woke me up in the middle of the night. And, well, I I should say, I, I just have this connection with Sirius and Orion, the constellations. And I woke up for no reason and looked out the window. And I remember thinking, I don't want to look out the window because whenever I've flown to Europe and I don't want to look out the window when we're over the Atlantic Ocean, because that is so scary to me (laughs) to look out of a plane window and see nothing but water. Well, Uh I looked out the window, it was night and there was Sirius and Orion. It was right there. And I took pictures of it. I have photos. They didn't come out so great. I think I had a Blackberry at the time. Um, and But I, I did it as proof to prove I wasn't dreaming. You know, what, what woke me up right at that moment where they were right in my field of view, right out that window. So anyway, well, I don't even know why I mentioned that. It was a difficult trip, got there, and you wanted to know what it was like to stand on that ground. What I told Sean Lau in that episode is that I actually felt a great sense of disappointment when I was there because I couldn't feel young. And it wasn't, be- I don't think it was because I wasn't in the right places. Now, I 
did not enter his home because it was not open to the public at the time. It was November uh-huh. of 2015. But I stood in his office in the building that, you know, I think Daryl, I think he gave me a postcard of that photo that was taken by Robert Hinshaw of the original Jung Institute, which is what Daryl attended uh-huh. there on, I can't pronounce the name of the street. It begins with a G. So now it's the home to the psychology club. Some people call it the psychological club. And uh-huh. the Jung Institute moved to Kusnacht. So I was in both buildings, but I just want to say that when I went to that building, I was in Jung's office, the room that was Jung's office, because it's the current president, uh, Andreas Spreitzer's office. And I spent uh-huh. a lot of time in that room with him. It was Jung's office. I mean, I, I keep reiterating that because I'm trying to like ground myself in it and I just couldn't uh-huh. feel him. I visited his grave and I talk about that on the episode that that I had a driver and he he we found out where the cemetery was because so after, so I visited his office, his home, again, didn't go inside, the Jung Institute, and his grave, the church that held his funeral. I was in there. I took video. I think it's on my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't feel him. I wasn't feeling him anywhere. And I'm very sensitive to things like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't see him. I didn't feel him. And I was very disappointed. And What about the tower? Did you get to bunk no, it at all? No, I couldn't. I couldn't. And I was told ahead of time that you need to try really hard, but don't expect to get in. Right. I'm without sure. <laughs> someone. Right. So I didn't uh-huh. even know where it was. And I didn't even go near it. I, I still don't know how I w- wouldn't know how to get there. But I did meet with Robert Hinshaw. Mm-hmm. And who owns the publishing company there in Einsiedeln. That's another thing I went to see the Black Madonna in Einsiedeln at the big abbey there. Uh-huh. And why can't I think of the, the name of the abbey? I don't know. But you're in Robert Hinshaw's office and you look out the window and the abbey's right there. So Jung lectured in that abbey. His famous lectures on Paracelsus were held there. Mm. And it's such a cute little town. I, I I could live there. I loved it so much. And, but I didn't, I didn't feel young. I just, it, everything felt modern and mm-hmm. I didn't sense him anywhere. Um, anyway, the gravesite. So I, when, when I went into the Jung Institute, which was closed, but there was somebody in the office. So, and I talk about that in the episode with Ruth Amon, who is the curator of the picture archive at the Jung Institute in Kusnacht, because I saw some of those, the, all these pictures, these paintings. I don't think she Uh liked me calling them paintings. Maybe she didn't like me calling them artwork. People would paint Why? Were they analysis work? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. But they're I guess I can understand. Right, right. They're not considered artwork if you if you're painting your dream, right? Uh Mm-hmm. Yeah, from what I understand, like uh you know, if you put art thinking about them um, or put art thinking on them, then people elaborate 
and mm. sort of leave the essential image. The, that is reminding me of, I found out about that book, Light from the Darkness. Now I have to find the exact title. Actually, Gary Sparks showed me that book when I went to his home to record episode two. Um, there is an original painting from Peter Burkhauser. That book, Light from the Darkness. Oh, gosh. Remember I said I was in Jung's office with mm. Andreas Schweitzer? One of the paintings that's in that book, another painting that's in that book, um, Burkhauser was an artist. And von Franz wrote all the commentary in that book mm. for each painting. Well, there's a painting called The Observer, and I, I like dark things, and it's this dark figure with one eye. And it's hanging in the lecture hall in the psychology club. And so, I uh, forgot where I was going with that, but uh, Schweitzer has the, the hunchback who's bringing light up from underground. And he just, he's going to, I'm sure he won't listen to this, but because um, he's no longer speaking to me because I talked about things that he told me. He gave me a private tour of the of the psychology club and then he got mad at me for talking about it. So oh, I don't really give a shit. On the podcast? Yeah, uh, no, on Twitter. Really? Yeah, somebody outed me to him. So. Oh my okay. goodness. Yeah, well, you know, it happens. So I'm looking up the name of that book. Oh, I did a blog post about it yeah called the observer it's in the blog and if if anybody wants to oh this was this is really old it's an old format but <laughs> if anybody wants to find anything on the website oh it's uh -huh. two eyes so there's a search page at, on speaking of Jung. you can just click search and it lists all the guests and uh -huh. then you can just click on the episode and then it lists all the blog posts. This is a horrible picture that I took of the painting, The Observer by Peter Burkhauser. Uh -huh. And it is in the book, Light from the Darkness, the paintings of Peter Burkhauser. Is he and, any relation to Sibylla Burkhauser? I don't know. He had a, a famous wife. Is that, well, could it be his yeah, wife? We had an author and her last name was Burkhauser Ori hyphenated. Yeah, that, I, I think probably, that's her. It's probably not a usual name, so it might be, yeah. Um, that's really interesting. And, you know, it brings up the point that the podcast, I have to confess, I haven't heard all the episodes because I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an auditory uh, processor really. Yeah. But there's a lot of written material on there. And like, for example, um, the, the excellent uh, interview you had with Susan Schwartz, um, I was interested in reading more of her and I ordered her book. But in the meantime, you had all those fantastic articles, um, PDF versions that people could download. Yeah, sometimes. So like there's hidden that. riches in that podcast for, for people who want to delve. Um, and of course, uh, Tommy pointed out you know, the voices that you have on that podcast that we can't even hear anymore. Mm. So like I found myself, I listen to episode one more or less constantly <laughs> because Aww, it's, yeah. yeah, I do. Because, you know, that, that was very big. It was a surprise to me that Daryl agreed to be interviewed and he yeah. was actually kind of enthusiastic about it. And so, you know, 
he um he's not an easy interview actually. <laughs> really? You don't think? Oh gosh, no. I he, don't think. What I liked about it though is he he challenged me. Like he's like, so what what was your question? Exactly. That was the example I was thinking and of. And I thought, damn, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. it when people do that. Yeah. Well, I just uh and hearing uh People like uh, John Dorley, who are too difficult, quite frankly, uh, for me to read easily, um, I would have to spend a considerable amount of time reading. Uh, yeah, that, it's great to hear them talking about their work. That was probably the hardest, one of the hardest episodes I did because his his material is just so above my head. I, I, I don't <laughs> so have the, brilliant. The, yeah, I just was in way over my head. And he, he was so kind and, and so, uh-huh. so generous to 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 talk to me and to do his best at explaining things to me. he's a professor so he's used to to lecturing mm-hmm. but um yeah that that was difficult but i'm glad we did that and my favorite episode right now is 28 mm-hmm. because gary gets quite mm-hmm. ooh, he gets quite <laughs> quite uh what's the word candid mm-hmm. is probably the understatement mm-hmm. about his feelings about the whole situation and Jungian thought and training and and gets quite political also and I kind of admire Jungians who I mean yes of course politics is a collective phenomenon and we tell people about ourselves when we talk about our politics but I think it is possible for Jungians to have some muscles in politics knowing what they know about how collective projection works and you know, how how stories become myths and myths become actions. Um, I, I just really loved what he said about that. I thought the Toynbee book was very underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see more done with it because it's certainly a book for the times we're in. It's about, like, why do we do this inner work? Like, what's the right. point? If it doesn't yep. connect up, it's not that it's all about the collective. It's always been about individuate, but but bring something back, you know, that is, that is a requirement. That is part of the journey is the return. Because otherwise it's the giant wank fest. And what's the point of any of it? Let me just for the listeners, let me just read the title of that episode. So 28 is Valley of Diamonds, but 35. So I did three with Gary. Uh So are you referencing just happened? Yeah, probably. But I, I was listening to 28 because um, actually I was, I just ordered a copy of Number and Time and I wouldn't dare try to read it without Gary's book to hand because um, Marie-Louise von Franz is my hero, but she is also very hard to read. Oh, which brings up an exciting point. Yeah. Like, Laura, if they told you that you'd be doing your podcast at a time when they were releasing new books of unseen material from Jung and Marie-Louise von yeah. Franz. You just spit in their eye. Yeah. So here we are with the black books, and here you got are. those first. Yeah. And you've got a copy of of the first volume of Marie Louise von Franz's collected works in your possession. Yes. Hmm. I have it. That's pretty exciting stuff. Well, it's going to be released in four days. So yeah, her birthday. If yeah, if anybody's ordered it, it's available for pre-order on Amazon and. Uh, please go to speakingofyoung.com. It's, there's a link to it on the front page. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's called 
What's it called, Liz? It's called Archetypal Symbols in Fairy Tales, the Profane and Magical Worlds. But it is pricey and it is only available in hardcover right now. And it won't be released in paperback until May. So Inner City Books has a number, I could tell you how many, of <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> of 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 what well, I have to look it up of von Franz's books uh, that they've published and Marie Louise von Franz is the honorary patron of Inner City Books and oh, yeah. I just wanted to mention I was going to mention this in the outro but I got to mention it now that Inner City Books has a brand new website and oh it, yeah it is Thanks live now right it is innercitybooks.net do you want to tell us about that Oh, well, that was a labor of love from Dave Sharp. And of course, Scott Milligan is uh, at the helm of the company now and doing a fantastic job of maintaining Daryl's original vision for the company. Mm -hmm. um, there's a possibility that we'll even have some new titles. I don't Great. think I can reveal much more than that. Okay. But um, I love the new website. It's much easier to use for yeah. ordering. Yeah. And um, it's... Uh, I think now instead of having emails going back and forth, you can order and pay seamlessly and get free shipping all over the world, which is kind of nice. Um, but the best thing about the website is it's now um, it's been brought into, you know, modern times and you can access things on your phone. It used to be a, a little bit limited in its function for different devices, but Dave Sharp is uh, our in-house it guru. So he's got that all straightened away. And, um, yeah, what I like about the inner city books um, editions of Marie-Louise von Franz is um, a lot of them were based on her lectures. So you have a sense of her voice. Yeah. And apparently she she's a fantastic writer. She's an absolute scholar and a genius. Yeah. And, you know, she's my total hero. But it's something to be in a room with her, I think. And the give and take and the way she phrases things in her lectures is slightly different than her scholarly writing. Mm -hmm. So there are about four or five lectures. And then, of course, her biography of Jung, which is, I mean, I've only read three or four, but I thought hers was the best. And, of course, she was writing from an insider perspective that right. nobody else would have. Right. She was probably closest so, to him, right? Well, yeah. And when you think of the project that she made possible... Um, you know, um, translating the medieval texts. Um, she really facilitated some work for Jung that I don't think he would have been able to take too far without her. So, yeah, she's kind of special to me, and I'm really excited about the collected works, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll be listening for that interview next week. It's broadcast on the 6th. We're recording. I'm recording it with the co-owners and co-editors of the series co-owners of Chiron mm -hmm. publications they edited this first book I don't know if they're co-editing all 28 volumes I I would imagine that they are mm. they are not the translators but they are the editors so this first volume what a huge undertaking I know because <laughs> it's almost 600 pages mm -hmm. this first volume and there's going to be 28 volumes. They are going to take 10 years to publish the entire series. Wow. So, so we're going to record on January 6th, and I hope to have it available by the end of the day. If not, mm -hmm. then the 7th. But I'm just, I'm on the Inner City Books website right now, 
Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at Von Franz's titles, and there are 12 of them. I think that's that's all. That's well, no, there are 11, and then there's a bundle. Mm-hmm. And on the shelf in Daryl's office, of course, there were like maybe 20 other volumes of hers that she published with other publishers. But um, yeah, I loved hearing the stories about her kicking the boys' butts all over the place during their exams. Just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so um, the the biography of hers of Jung that you mentioned is titled C.G. Jung, His Myth and Our Time. And that's yeah. title 77 from Inner City Books. Yeah, and it implies, I mean, Gary, I think Gary Sparks is a singular voice for, I mean, I think much as Marie-Louise von Franz extended the work that Jung couldn't complete in his, you know, he was sort of veering off into physics and how physics showed matter and spirit um, sort of, sort of, yeah, flipping two mandalas or two coins, you know, two sides of the same coin. But I almost feel like, uh, I, I can't remember where I read it, but I know, I can almost remember the part where I think Gary jumped off from uh, with the Toynbee thing, that uh, Marie-Louise von Franz was thinking that this was an area to extend her work into, looking at how an individual person or culture says something about you know, the level of consciousness of the wider civilization. And, um, okay. and then he, I think he extends her work in very interesting ways. And I think, you know, of all the people that I've heard uh, talk about her, he seems to keep the, the spirit alive. So um, long story short, uh, I think that's what she did with uh, C.G. Jung, his myth in our time was sort of say he was a man for his time, but we weren't able to see the significance of some of the things he was struggling with yes. during the times because we were in the soup with him. And it might take another 50 years to really understand the implications of everything he thought and wrote about. Yes. Yes. And a a lot of times I will, you know how I do that random Jung quote of the day? Mm -hmm. I don't do it every day. I wish I did it every day. Uh, But I will, I, it is random. I will and if it's not yeah, random, don't tie it down too much, Laura, because then you will have to call it the predictable routine young quote of the day. Yes. Well, if it's not random, if it's because I was searching for something, I won't put the emojis. The Those two emojis <laughs> indicate that it is the random young quote of the day. So, so many times somebody will reply to the tweet and say, this is applicable today. Mm-hmm. This is so timely. And of course, he wrote it in either the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you go to Jung speaking and read his statements about um, dictators and collective movements towards war, uh, I actually had to have a little lie down with my head between my knees after I read that in, chapter. In C.G. Jung speaking? Or, or Jung speaking, yeah. It's C.G. Jung speaking? The Black yeah. Book? Yeah, C.G. Jung speaking. It's right yeah. behind me. That's yeah. one of my favorite books, Interviews and Encounters. Mm-hmm. And it here's here's a a topic that I don't I don't even think that I'm articulate enough right now to get into, but it's about copying. And I have that book. It's a paperback book, and I can actually find out when I bought a book because if I I'm logged into Amazon, I go to Amazon, I type in 
the title of the book and it'll tell me when I bought it. Mm -hmm. So if I type in C.G. Jung speaking and I click on the paperback, it says you last purchased this item on October 8th, 2014. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm looking at the cover. It's black with white letters. It looks very similar to the design of speaking of Jung's website and oh which is so it does white with black letters that was not done consciously that was <laughs> done unconsciously but i that is one of my favorite books and i used to keep that book out on my desk and so i would see mm -hmm. it all the time and the font that i use on the website cuz i designed the website yes it's squarespace but i still pick the template the mm -hmm. colors the font. And I love font. It's font is one of my hobbies. I actually collect fonts. So what I'm trying to say is that when I titled the podcast, it took me a long time to come up with a title. Speaking mm -hmm. of young, there were others that <laughs> and yet there it was on the cover. And there it is. CG Young <laughs> speaking, speaking of young, and then mm -hmm. how the subtitle is kind of in a italicized kind of script. Oh, if I were you, I would cop to planning that. <laughs> no, I did. And it was totally <laughs> unconscious. It's <laughs> Yes. And so, and so that is just a good, good example of how we, when somebody says, oh, you know, you, you stole my idea. I didn't do it consciously. I didn't, I didn't name the podcast and design the website based off this book, but this book. Well, had, what if you had, what would be so bad? Well, it's then it's not very original. It's copying. I would have thought it was clever as hell. Oh. Because you stuck very, very close to the authentic and, uh, you know, uh, authentic is the word, I guess. You have stuck close to speaking to analysts, and there's a reason for that. And same reason Inner City Books had for publishing analysts almost exclusively, which is analysts are not academics some of them overlap right. but there right, is a process right, right. that you go through to be an analyst which I personally don't know if I'd ever have the guts to attempt oh, which is a, a crucible of fire and experience that you go through that only other analysts I guess understand yeah Gary brought that point up too like yeah. that was a hell of an episode 28 yeah. was a hell of an episode he said something about it being like an oral tradition. Yes. That there was no orthodoxy, there was no method, there was only experience and mentorship and, you know, uh, inspiration. But the toolbox is flexible and it totally depends on the, the milieu of culture intersecting with the individuals at, at that chirotic moment. And you can't teach that except by going through it. So, um, so what if you did? What if you did copy Young Speaking? What would be the end of the world in there? No, not end of the world. I just, I, I didn't want. It's somebody else's work, and I like I wouldn't want somebody copying my work. But but we all do it, and I I sure. would say something. Here here's something to contrast it with. I did copy the design of. The bowling series, yes, collected yeah. works. You know where I'm well, going with this. Well, you did that this. consciously and, and explicitly. Yes, but I did that. I mean, on it purpose. wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's white text on a black cover. I mean, nobody's copyrighted that. <laughs> no, but it it looks like if you were to put them side by side, you would think that 
that one had something to do with the other because they are so similar. And I have gotten angry in the past. I flipped out on, this is before I became friends with the people behind Chiron. I don't mind telling the story. I probably shouldn't, but... (laughs) Um, Maybe you want to hold it till after January. No, 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 (laughs) no. Go for Uh, it. uh, Yeah, they, Steve Buser, he knows me and and we're, we've become actually friends and, and I really like him and he's, he's a good guy, but uh, I went off on him because I think it was him. I can't remember who I did because there's a, a series of DVDs called Jungians Speaking. Mm-hmm. So my podcast is Speaking of Jung. That series is Jungian Speaking. He didn't produce them. I think he meaning Chiron. They distributed them. They, uh, what are, what's the right word? They weren't made by Chiron. They were made by Blue Salamandra Films. Uh, Louise. They may have been distributors. For, yes. I forgot his last name already. So Jungian speaking, speaking of Jung, and it's a series of them. Some of them I've interviewed on my podcast. They came mm-hmm. out after speaking of Jung was created and their design is similar. They're the, with the black and white mm. and with interviews with Jungian analysts, but they're, they're, specification is interviews with Jungian analysts in Zurich. Uh So I was mad because I thought they copied me and I just like threw a fit and and told him to F off. And Oh um, no. But so, but he totally understood because, you know, he's a psychiatrist. So he's used to that kind of thing. And uh, Mm. I know I should not be telling this story. I'll probably edit it out. (laughs) Um, but the, he he sent me a, a set uh-huh. and and they're they're actually they're actually really cool because uh, when I I scheduled Peter Amon who he 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 said he was the last living analyst to have actually met Jung in person and he talks about that on the episode I did with him earlier this year Peter Amon uh, and he's in one of these DVDs. Um, Jungian speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know how we got on that. Oh, but well, by copying. The anxiety about originality. I, I honestly think, I mean, I know that you have very high standards for yourself, but oh my God, how many different ways are there to describe people opening their mouths and emitting words and sounds uh, <laughs> in dialogue? Mm. I mean, speaking is an obvious one. I mean, you don't mm. want to have to be too coy and, and work around the obvious best word for it Mm. but Mm. um but i don't know i mean you know what they say about an imitation being the sincerest form of flattery like you know there there will be a proliferation of podcasts once people see how interesting they can be and you know it provides a wider conversation and you know you have your the fact that you were sort of first out of the gate um that counts for something well, I wanted to create something unique and different and special. And then I realized how not special it was, not unique it was, because <laughs> as I mentioned with Tommy, I Bonnie Bright has a podcast where she interviews Jungian analysts and Dr. Dave has Shrink Rap Radio where he interviews psychologists. So it's not that I did anything that unique. 
And that's when I realized I just need to make this my own and mm-hmm. be instead of instead of asking the listeners, well, what do you want to hear? What do you want to see? What do you like? What do you not like? Mm-hmm. I realized, no, I don't want to do this for other people. Yes, I want to share it with other people, but I need to put my own thumbprint on it. I need this to be my take, my Uh contribution. It needs to come from inside of me. That's why I don't want feedback. And I don't (laughs) want suggestions. And also when people ask me, when I, you know, the, because like, you know, you mentioned that you found me on Twitter in 2014. So you, you know, you have experience with, we, we see each other on Twitter, right? So you, Mm. you see what I tweet. And when I put it out there. It's I'm reading and I come across a sentence or a paragraph that I think is so interesting and I want to share it. So I type it or copy paste it into a tweet. When people then ask me to explain it, no, no, that's your job. If you, (laughs) it's about what it means to you. Because what it means to me is not going to be the same as what it means to you. And uh-huh. also, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, to affect your experience. I have my experience of what this means, but you need to figure out what this means to you, or why does this interest you? Why does uh-huh. this particular quote interest you? And, 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 and so, you know, I don't answer questions on Twitter, and I don't want to get into discussions on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's probably wise but i also like that you always put citation information so people can do their own investigations oh, that's, that's another thing that makes it very valuable yeah so and the thing is too on the podcast like i don't know how many hours you must spend doing those um those resource notes that you put with every episode but that's not notes. nothing like that's a whole course in itself so um well thank you, know, you people for are getting noticing. a lot well, well i, I use I, them <laughs> thank you but i just i do want to say this because I don't think I mentioned this to Tommy and now I forgot what I was gonna say. Oh, yeah, I didn't mention this to Tommy, but it was in the notes that one of the drawbacks of people listening to the podcast on these podcasting platforms, which I don't know how I feel about what they do. They take the podcast and put it on their website where people can stream it, download it. Oh, really? I don't, I don't should really I don't, ask you for permission. You know, yeah, nobody does. So it's on things I mean, like to make a link to your, if they link to your Twitter account, at least you're getting the traffic well, or the I website wanted, will get the traffic, but like they should at least, if they're going to put it on their own website as an embed, they should, uh, they should be asking. It, it, it's strange to me because I know, and what, I, what I've come to realize is that a lot of podcasts don't have their own website. So they use, use things like Spreaker or, I don't know, SoundCloud or Libsyn. I, I, I don't know, but they don't have their own website. I wanted my own website because I wanted a bio and a photo of the person, of the guest. And I wanted to put show notes. I wanted to, because like I was telling Tommy, I have a long history of listening to podcasts. And when I do listen and a guest would mention a book or an article or a place and I'm washing dishes, 
it sounds like I'm all I do is wash dishes. It's just the example that I use <laughs> is I do have a dishwasher, um, but you can't Sometimes always... things don't fit in the dishwasher. I know. It's so frustrating. And now the heating element burnt out in my dishwasher, probably because <laughs> I'm home every day now and using it so uh -huh. much. And the, uh, the part is out of stock and this has been going on for months and so it can't get fixed because the part is out of stock. But I mean, this is such a minor inconvenience. So what the, the, so I have to open the dishwasher so that it dries. Anyway, doesn't matter. Listen to me. <laughs> what, what was I saying? So the, you were saying something about podcast, taking oh. your podcast and embedding it in other people's websites, which well, is it, it, yeah, not like, good practice. No, but it's done so many, so many, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, websites out there. Here's my point. If anybody is still listening, this is my point. <laughs> Please visit speakingofyoung.com because that's where you will find out what my guest just mentioned, what book they just mentioned. Yeah, if they and mentioned, that's a big deal. Yeah, that Jung said something, I go and find out where he said it. And if I can't find it, I email my guest later and I say, where was that quote or where was the, what letter was that in? And all of that information is in the show notes. So if this is why I didn't want to put the podcast on YouTube, but I caved into the pressure and you can stream from a certain point on, you can, you can play speaking of young episodes on YouTube, not all of them. And I'm mm -hmm. probably going to stop doing that because I, 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 I don't think YouTube is the place to stream audio. Uh -huh. It's for videos. It's for videos. Uh -huh. You can stream Speaking of Jung's audio straight from speakingofjung.com. You don't need a, a special app and you don't have to download it. You can just go to speakingofjung.com, click on the episode page, and then there's a there's a audio bar. If you just uh -huh. click on it, it'll just start playing. Well, anyway. it saves me Googling while I'm listening because I really like being able to go to the, the texts and sites that are being referenced in the podcast. Well, that was one of the things that I thought I could, like I was saying, I wanted to create something unique and different and helpful and informative. But if people mm -hmm. don't go to speakingofyoung.com, if they just stream the podcast from Apple Podcasts or from Spotify, now it's also on Amazon Music, then mm. you're going to miss the guest bio and photo yeah. and show I don't notes. even know why anybody would do that. Um, it's, it's a really nicely curated site. I, and there's music and there's, you know, and a lot of rarities too. Like I think there are little bits of video that you can't actually find anywhere else, aren't there? Um, like I remember there were a few, like you did a couple of short videos with Daryl. Yeah, I think I put those on my YouTube channel. You so, did, yeah. But they're all in one place, so I, I don't. I honestly don't understand why why anyone would not play directly from the website. It's a nice looking website. Thank you. Thank you. But thank one you. thing I was curious yeah. about, though, because we've sort of bounced around the issue of you know what's so special about Jungian analysts. Uh -huh. And you mentioned that you'd been in analysis for something like none of my damn business, of course, but 17 years. And so it's always interesting to me, like you can get a lot of value out of the experience of analysis, but not everybody's called to be an analyst. Right. So I wonder, 
maybe what your personal view is on it, or if you've talked yeah. to any of the analysts and this has maybe come up, how do they decide to throw themselves into the well or into that, the lion's yeah. den or the crucible or whatever we call it? What what I wonder what impulse makes that happen? They all, in general, I'm sorry to generalize here, but they all just seem to naturally... They, they wind up in analysis, and then they just naturally want to become an, a Jungian analyst. And I have always known that I didn't want to be, a, I call it a clinician, that I didn't want to be <laughs> a clinician nor an analyst. And I was a psychology major as an undergraduate in college, because mm-hmm. I was interested in psychology, because I was interested in my psychology, because I wanted to understand my interactions with other people, with my family and with my friends and with my relationships, I was always very curious and, you know, with my teachers or just the people I used to show horses and the people that I interacted with, I, I just was always curious about human behavior, but I Mm -hmm. never, ever, not even for a minute wanted to become a psychologist or or let alone a Jungian analyst. Hmm. And you know, I kind of did because you. I was to. lucky enough to live driving distance from Toronto when Marion Woodman was lecturing, mm. and uh, I would go up to her after one particular thing and say, "So, how do you get to be a Jungian analyst?" And she'd say, "Get an MA in anything; doesn't uh-huh. matter what." Uh-huh. <laughs> but she didn't mention the part about throwing yourself into the deepest, darkest pits. Oh. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, watching her lecture was really something. And how um, fortunate that you you got to witness that. That's incredible. Yeah, she's, didn't she's have the guts for the workshops, mind you, but uh, fantastic lectures. Lectures, yeah. So, mm-hmm. what would you would you share with me a little bit about you? You talked about throwing yourself in the deepest, darkest pit. Would you, because you explain things so well, and. I would love it if you would share a little bit uh, that that you shared with me yesterday when we were chatting. When I asked you, I know I don't I don't want to, hmm, I don't want to. Oh, go for it! I will shut you down. Okay, so so we were I... talking about Daryl and mm. not and and I. You know what, Liz? We did not clarify your relationship to inner city books or to Daryl. Everybody can listen to episode 71, which is the five-year anniversary special of Speaking of Jung that I recorded with the people behind Inner City Books. Uh, Daryl passed away last year in 2019, but his two sons, Dave and Ben, were my guests, along with uh, Victoria Cowan, who was... uh, the senior, se- editor. the senior editor at Inner City Books and and house artist, thank God, artist <clears throat> too. We talked a lot about her art and Scott Milligan, who now mm-hmm. runs Inner City Books. He was on the mm-hmm. episode and Liz. So, would you say a little bit about your <laughs> your how 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 you my hanger onism, my my role, my no, I mean your association. <laughs> that's the word I was my association. For. Your association my with inner city books. Your affiliation <laughs> with inner city books. Yeah, well, you know, I, I said something like this in episode seventy one, but you know, I had happened in very late. I mean, as a sixteen year old high school student, I had ordered 
all the inner city books that there were at the time with my birthday money. Hey, <laughs> and I got to talk to Daryl on the phone. Didn't you I? Oh. When you were 16? In high school, synchronistically, know. every time I turned around, I was getting young thrown in my face. Mm-hmm. If we did a story in school, in literature class, a Jungian interpretation would come up. Or um, Anyway, I, I had a family doctor who had uh, found the C.G. Young Foundation at Toronto, and he was recommending books from there. And I was very, very lucky to be near Toronto at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, my grandma gave me birthday money for my 16th birthday. (laughs) So I called up Inner City Books and ordered these books. And I actually got to talk to Daryl on the phone. I remember thinking it was weird that he didn't have a receptionist. Were you 16 when you talked to him? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought he must be a great and powerful personage (laughs) to be writing such books and publishing such books. So look at him answering the phone. (laughs) I remember saying, you don't sound like a publisher. I don't remember really? what he said. Probably <laughs> he something said crusty that? like, well, what does a publisher sound like? But uh, And then uh, I talked to him again many decades later when a friend of mine was in a rough spot and was having a creative crisis. And he was like, bring him in. Uh-huh. You know, bring them in, I should say. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> bring them in. I'll be happy to help. And I thought, what a, what a nice man. But then we bumped into each other um, because uh, the same friend was having an art show. And I Googled the location of the art show and realized it was on the same block as Inner City oh, Books. Right. Yeah. And I just thought that would be so incredible if I could finally, you know, see the place that had produced all these beautiful books. Uh-huh. And uh, we didn't end up meeting that day, but we started a correspondence. And I um, ended up making his acquaintance at a time in his life when he was really, um, he wasn't writing so much and uh-huh. he wasn't feeling so well. Yeah. And he, uh, he, um, he was probably the best friend I'll ever have. And um, yeah. anyway, uh, I, I tried to play, you know, little roles. Like he was very focused on the business, very focused. The business was hugely successful by Canadian publishing standards. Mm-hmm. It's a niche publisher that sold millions of copies of books in high demand and, um, it doesn't get a lot of credit for that in Canada. And I find that really funny. Um, just, you know, I'm recently, I've been cataloging the contents of Daryl's office and his books have been published in so many languages and gone all over the world. People in Brazil are so interested in oh, Jungian theory. Yeah. It's like it's faded out in Toronto a little bit. And in North America, maybe people are easing off a little bit on it. But it's very, very hot in Brazil right now. You can actually take a course in Jungian um, depth psychology in university. Here, even though his ideas are mainstream, they don't teach him. uh, As far as I know, they might touch on him in a historical discussion of psychology. But they don't teach Jungian psychology as its own thing. So I find that really weird. Um, but anyway, my point was that's how I ended up joining inner city books and the social media part was sort of the part I was interested in, Mm -hmm. although I did do some proofreading and I just got to see, you know, a version of Daryl that there weren't a lot of people around. So, um, he was very, very close to his family and, um, I was very privileged to be there, but he had been so many different people in his lifetime. And I'm only just now realizing, um, you know, how how much he contributed to, 
you know, so many people. He was always helping people quietly behind the scenes. And, um, of course, he started the, with Marion Woodman and Fraser Boa, started mm-hmm. the um, training program in Toronto, which kind of changed things quite a bit. But, um, yeah, I guess I was just a witness on the sidelines, really. Daryl kept his business very small. He, he had his dream team, and he, you know, he wasn't looking to, to expand or do anything other than the work that was right in front of him. And he, he, he was a faithful servant to uh, his vocation. So did thank that you answer your question? Yes, thank you for sharing that. And <laughs> but, uh, it, he was just a fantastic person, as you know. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, what wasn't, didn't suffer fools and wasn't the easiest person to, you know, he was very focused on his... Uh, whatever his project of the moment was. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I yeah. They, go they, on and say great things about him, but you would get tired of it after a while, I'm sure. No, I, I appreciate you sharing all of that because there were some things in there that I didn't know. And what something that you mentioned uh, when we were chatting yesterday that you explained it so well, and I just was hoping that maybe you can share that with the listeners, you can be a little bit more general, but you're saying (laughs) how Daryl, yeah, uh, didn't believe or didn't feel that Jungian analysts belonged in, was it the psychoanalytic council i don't i don't know how things well, are structured in, in canada, canada we have a yeah we have different regulatory bodies for different kinds of things like for example the college of physicians and surgeons and and things like that so okay. there's a, a regulatory body for professional psychotherapists and i don't think i'm telling any tales out of school okay um i think daryl was pretty pleased to make this opinion very clear mm-hmm. to a lot of people um he he the, the Ontario Association of Union Analysts had put before their body a vote on whether to belong to the Ontario College of um, Psychotherapists. I can't remember the exact acronym, but he always called it CRAPO. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might even be the acronym, but really? it was just too perfect. Anyway, he was absolutely furious by the suggestion, made Mm. furious by the suggestion that uh, Jungian analysts would allow themselves to be regulated because he felt that they were, he used the phrase sui generis, they are their own thing. Each analyst, you know, is connected to Jung's practice and ideas, but it's a, you know, you're hammered into shape by your own experience in the analytic process that you have, and then you bring something to each person according to what you feel is called for in mm-hmm. your the space you create yeah. and in the uh, analytic hour and that you know there's no orthodoxy there's no you know there's best practices but i mean i wouldn't even know if maybe some youngians dispense with best practices if they feel that there's a psychologically valid reason to do that i, I can't comment on that because i don't know but he just felt that Belonging to a regulatory body with its own uh, different goals for practice. For example, most psychotherapists want to fix people in relatively few sessions. Yeah. Uh, Jungian analysts are not there to fix. They're not there to patch. They're not 
doing spot welding. It's an ongoing process and part of life. And it's toward wholeness, you know, it's toward authentic being. It's not necessarily going to make you easier to get along with or make your family happier with you or make you more employable. So there are different goals at work and different processes at work. And he just, he hated the whole idea and was really very clear about that and quit, uh, resigned from (laughs) the organization that he helped to found and that he served as president for, for a long time. And he, uh, he just said, I'm not, not doing that thing. In, in the defense of the people who were there, um, you can't uh, bill on private insurance in Canada. Like People have employment insurance that can cover some forms of psychotherapy, okay. but they usually have to be registered psychotherapists, and Jungians would not have been included mm-hmm. in that. Okay. So it makes it more accessible to people to be able to use private insurance. But again, as Gary pointed out, I don't know why I keep thinking about Gary, but that that. He's, the interviews you did with him brought up some very important issues, and yeah, I he think was, about. Them I just a lot. want to jump in there, Liz. He's a huge part of this podcast. I did three episodes mm-hmm. with him, yeah, because Daryl introduced us, and he and Daryl were very close. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Gary contributed a lot to this podcast, and I'm very grateful to him. He's brilliant. He taught me a lot. He spent a <laughs> lot of time. Anytime I had a question, I would go to him. I would write to him, and he would answer mm-hmm. me. And so, yeah, yeah, well-deserved. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, just, just, I I totally agree with that, that, um, but I can't remember the the point I was just making. It was something about, oh yeah, money. No, no. It was the, it was the point we had raised already, which was, yes, Jungian psychology and analysis is very expensive and it's a commitment over time. But as Gary pointed out, there's no Jungian really who wouldn't, either provide a sliding scale or make some arrangement because they're so committed to, you know, when possible, helping people on that path yeah. of individuation. I know Daryl did. I know he, he, quite frankly, his rates were very low. <laughs> it wasn't about the money for him. I believe but, it, yeah. But anyway, so it, it yes, more people can access Jungian therapy if Jungian analysts are in the College of Psychotherapists, but... Daryl thought that that was a completely terrible idea and he, he wouldn't be involved anymore after they made the decision to go that route. And so I guess that was sort of when he retired, but, um, you know, he felt, he felt very strongly about, um, about staying close to what Jung wrote. I mean, he didn't mind people developing the ideas and he didn't, he wasn't in favor of orthodoxy, but he was like, there's some basic stuff there. And if you depart too much from that, you're doing something else, which is cool and good for you. But um, the big guy knew what he was doing and you, uh, you need to at least keep some spark of that in your work. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I had somebody write to me recently and I, I mean, I, I have people write to me often and it used to be emails and now it's I have to say it's almost exclusively Twitter private message Facebook (laughs) private message Instagram Mm -hmm. private message Instagram is really growing uh I I would like to clear something up I do have two Instagram accounts Jungian Mm -hmm. Laura which is also the name of my Twitter account and there's also a speaking of Jung account on Instagram that is me but I combined it with my because I don't like 
posting personal photos of myself on Instagram. So I, I just use my Instagram account for the website or for the podcast for speaking of Jung. So if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, please follow the Jungian Laura account and not the speaking of Jung account. I keep asking people that and every day oh, I get notifications that, that there are followers on, on the speaking of Jung account. But anyway, oh, so yeah. So well, further to that, <laughs> I like your Jungian uh, Instagram account, but Inner City Books is on Instagram. Yes. It's just that it's a medium I do not understand it's because so I like different. words and it's oh, pictures. Right. So, A, anybody who wants to help me with learning Instagram, reach out mm. <laughs> immediately. But I am going to start doing more regular posts starting in the new year because Scott would like to, um, you know, let everybody know that. Inner City Books is on track and ready for the new year. And uh, yeah, so my Instagram posting has been um, basically one post so far, but okay. you will see a change there. Yeah, so people can just search for Inner City Books on Instagram and, and find you. I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. no, but what I was going to say is that somebody wrote to me on, I think it was Instagram, and mentioned that they incorporated Jung in their work. Mm -hmm. And he may have even implied, he, I think he used the phrase Jungian analysis. And because you incorporate Jung in your work does not make you a Jungian analyst. I know that no, not I at sound all. like an asshole saying that, but... Well, no, you don't, because it's quite okay to call yourself a Jungian-oriented therapist. You can definitely do that. You can do that, but you're not a Jungian analyst. I'm sorry. No, you're not. You're yeah. not. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm in this podcast, I can only do so much, as I said mm -hmm. to Tommy. So I'm focused on Jungian analysts and Jungian analysis. And if you're doing something else, then there are other podcasts that 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 might uh, be interested in in maybe doing an interview with you, but I'm I try to make a point on every episode I do about how Jungian analysts differ from mm -hmm. therapists, from psychologists, from psychiatrists. I try to hammer that point home, and mm -hmm. and I need to keep doing that because I haven't reached everybody clearly, and even people who listen to the podcast are still not clear about that. So mm. I guess I'm just going to have to – I mean, it, it, it's what my analyst did, and I still praise her for it. I say, I would say to her, you know, you've been saying that to me for like – five years, and I'm just now getting it. And she would laugh and say, well, you know, that's that it takes as long as it takes. And, and we mm -hmm. learn through repetition. So uh, yeah, I need to keep emphasizing uh, what the difference is between a Jungian analyst and uh, the rest of us. I was uh, fed up with other types of therapy and there it's when you're working with someone who has been analyzed themselves it's a completely different experience <laughs> yeah, it's funny you said to me once uh this is a very personal anecdote but i guess i have no judgment left um i said something like daryl when i'm with you like when i'm with other people i just it's i feel itchy like i'm just not comfortable yeah. but with you i feel sort of you know peaceful and nice yeah. 
And he said, well, my dear, that's what happens when you're individuated. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's a lot like a sad saying. I mean, it's not like I thought Daryl was a huge guru, but there was a presence, you know, there's a place and a space there that is available that, you know, you don't have with other people. And, and, and it comes through, I, I was not, I only met him three times, but it comes through in his books that there is a comfort there. And mm. thank you for mentioning that because that, that makes sense is that when I read his books, even if I just pick up a book and read a page, it's like, he under he gets it. He understands life. He, he gets it. And, and I mm. feel comforted by that. Because life well, doesn't he's very humbled sense. by his experiences, too. Mm-hmm. And that's why um, one great thing about Daryl Sharp is um, he was not, I mean, he could be crusty and dismissive if he chose to be, but he would never not work with a person because they weren't, you know, of a certain sector of society. Oh, right, right. Like he was very, very, um, he took people at face value. If they wanted to do the work, he didn't really give a much of a care about any other thing. So you're right. He, he, it was all there, but he had been very, very humbled himself. Yeah. And he certainly understood that people were a mess and yeah. that th- they all might want to get better. And if they were willing to put the work into themselves, he would, he would be there with them. Yeah. And there is the impression. It, I got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you knew him best, I would say. And, and I wish I could say that, but you know, it's not true. He had some lifelong friends that he would, you know, he just was deeply loved by a few very key people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was just, uh, I was just lucky to be there for the six years that I got. I would have taken, you know, 10 times more than that if it had been available. But, um, but yeah, I wouldn't say I knew him the best, but I'm certainly thrilled to report that um, he put up with me for length of time that make me think, makes me think that uh, I was at least on the right wavelength at, at most of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I just wanted to mention, I'm sure that this is on the Inner City Books website, but it's also on the Speaking of Jung website. Uh, Daryl wrote kind of an autobiographical what would you call oh, it? Yeah. A, a, an article, a, a piece? Yeah. I, I never mm-hmm. know what word to use. Oh, yeah. I and guess you would call it a memoir sort of thing. A, a, a memoir. And it's a very long page. It's in the Speaking of Young blog. And it's titled, Who is Daryl Sharp? So if you go to Speaking of Young's search page, there's a list of all the blog posts. And if you just scroll down to the bottom of the page and look for who is Daryl Sharp, he starts with when he was born and <laughs> how he grew up and his family and all the different jobs he had. And and mm. uh, and, and you can read that and, and then eventually how he wound up in Zurich and... Mm-hmm. Um, he was going to be like a madman, right? Like he was he was going to be the CEO of Procter & Gamble. Right. Oh. And he just yeah. he wrote the most amazing letter to himself. Um it's his birthday on January 2nd. Yeah. And uh he had written this letter in 1956. So he would have been in his 20th year. And he just basically said, "I want to be an individual. I do not want to work for a company that's about 
taking that away from people. I mean, nothing against Procter & Gamble. God knows cleanliness is a virtue. <laughs> right. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But he just said, I, I don't think that I can do the corporate man thing. It's very exciting. I love it. I got my own camera. I've got a, you know, fancy car and a secretary. But I, I don't, I don't think this is what I can do with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I want to write. Mm -hmm. And that's all he wanted to do. And that's what he did. Thank God he did. Thank mm -hmm. God he did. So I think we're going to wrap up. It's New Year's Eve. It's six o'clock here in Chicago. And we're going on three hours here. So mm -hmm. let's wrap this thing up, Liz. What do you say? I say yes. I say Happy New Year to you and Tommy and all of your listeners. And I'm hoping 2021 will be a wonderful year. And it's starting off with the collected works of Marie-Louise von Franz. So that's yes. not too shabby. So I'll be listening in this week to hear that podcast, Laura. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for uh, hanging out with me on this kind of uh, it's really special, special night. And for everything that you shared with us for the listeners and to the listeners and for being so supportive of this podcast throughout the years. I oh, mentioned pleasure. this on episode 71. It wouldn't exist without you. I know you don't like it when I say that, but it's true. So thank you for your I love friendship. it. But Honestly, the credit is yours. But seriously, I I I couldn't have done this without uh, a few key people, and you are one of them. So I thank you for that. And I'll take that. Thank you very all much. Right. All right. So with that said, I'm going to read an outro. I'm going to read this outro. I'm not editing this, and I'm going to hate that I didn't edit this. <laughs> but this is so off the cuff for you. <laughs> yeah, people want authenticity, and uh, oh, this here is we go. me. Okay, and my voice is fading. So, please Leave visit. nothing on the field, Laura. <laughs> nothing's, on, nothing's left. Please visit that website we were talking about, speaking of Jung, J-U-N-G. I say that, I, I know some of you are probably rolling your eyes, but some people have no idea. J-U-N-G, speaking of J-U-N-G.com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode, although there will be no show notes for this episode. But you'll also find there all of the previous episodes of this podcast, a lot of which we've mentioned during this past three hours. They're available to stream or to download for free. This episode, as well as all the others, are also available on Amazon Music, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it may or may not be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or on TuneIn, and they're on sale. You can get one as, for as little as $24.99 US right now. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J when you say Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up with special thanks to my guest host, Tommy Lassels, and to Liz Jefferson. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Or, 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 or